He really is a great, great God that we worship. And I'm glad to be reminded that we all need that reminder every week that we are here not because of us, not because of what we get or because of anything other than the God that we're here to worship. Um, and thank you um, as well for your, your kindness to me. Um, and Dale, your, your words of saying, you know, that you're lucky to have someone of my talents. I'm not really sure that's true, that that's gracious. Um, but I truly am lucky to be a pastor at a church that is so kind um, and so loving and so gracious to me. Um, and I'm profoundly grateful for you. And so I want to start by thanking you. Um, but so the, this morning, um, I was thinking about Aslan and Narnia, which if you've never read it, the last book is called The Last Battle, fittingly. And it begins talking about an, an ape named Shift, and, which is fitting because he's kind of a shifty character. And he finds a, a lion carcass or some lion skin. And so he gets a bright idea and takes this and convinces his, his friend, Puzzle, who is a donkey, to put on the skin and pretend to be a king like King Aslan, who is a lion. And so they kind of go through this, and he talks them into it, and he goes along with their plan, and they start to pretend to be the king and use, you know, all the authority of the king to enrich themselves, to make things work out for how they want it to be. And predictably, this leads to conflict, and it leads to things not working out quite so well for Narnia at all. It ends up leading in disaster. We see something similar in this chapter, the second half of Gideon's life will be at the, the end of chapter 7, the last couple of verses, and all of chapter 8. And what we see with Gideon is Gideon too sets himself up as a false king. Though Gideon does it a little with trickery as well. He pretends to not be a king, or he says that he's not a king, and yet then everything he does with his actions, he acts as if he is a king. And what we learn and what we see from the life of Gideon is really we get a picture of what true kings should be like. So this morning we're going to look at Gideon, and then we're going to look at Jesus, and then finally we'll just look at ourselves and ask, okay, so what should we do? And so if you are able, if you would stand with me as we read from God's Word, we're going to start in verse 23 of chapter 7 and go all the way to the end of chapter 8. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and capture the waters against them, as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebezer? And God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And I have not been able, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the man of Sakoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmulna, the kings of Midian. 
And the officials of Zukoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. And from then he went to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, and about 15,000 of the men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew up the sword. And Gideon went by the way of the tent dwellers, east of Noba and Jogbeha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him all the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? So he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with him, and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks of their camels. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And he answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels, Gideon made an ephod of it. And he put it in his city in Oprah, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. The land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and they made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that we would hear it and we would listen to it. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears, allow us to not hear the words of me, but the words of you and your word and your Holy Spirit. Be in this place. 
Comfort those who need comforting. Strengthen those who are weak. And will we leave this place having had an encounter with you and your word? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So first we're going to take a look at Gideon. And our point number one, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that Gideon is a false king who rules for himself. Gideon is a false king who rules for himself. And this passage really kind of centers around kingship. About who is the true king. And Gideon gets offered this position of kingship right away kind of in 22. It's in the middle of this. It's almost kind of sandwiched here. And the men of Israel say to Gideon, rule over us. And you and your grandson and your son, for you saved us from the hand of Midian. Notice there, they, they're already doing what God didn't want them to do. To say that you have saved us or man has saved us. They're not saying God saved us. They're saying Gideon saved us. And they're mentioning his sons and grandsons. This isn't just talking about him being a judge and a leader. They are saying, be a king. Establish a dynasty for us so we can be great like the Midianites. They want him to be more than a judge. And Gideon responds rightly with his words, but not so much with his actions. He rejects the title and says, no, I don't want to rule over you. And my son won't rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. He says the right thing theologically, but he doesn't actually believe it. Because everything he's done before then has been acting like a king, and everything he does after it is also acting like a king. He says the right thing, but he doesn't actually live as if that's true, and that sounds like many of us, doesn't it? We will profess one thing with our lips, and then we do something different with our actions. A very obvious way to see that Gideon doesn't really believe this is the name of one of his sons. He has 70 sons, and we're only given the names of two of them. And the one that we get after hearing about how many he has in 31, his name is Abimelech. Well, in Hebrew, that means son of the king. Well, okay, that's pretty clear what Gideon thinks of himself as. He thinks he's a king. He's naming his children after that. So he's not acting very much like somebody who doesn't want to be king. And so because of that, too, he's, he's a false king. And he's a false king in many ways. He's not just flawed, like our series has been of talking about flawed heroes, but he actively pursues sin all throughout this chapter. And we see very quickly how fast he turns away from God. It begins all the way back in chapter 7. You may wonder, well, why did we stop there last week at verse 23? That seemed kind of like a weird place to stop. Well, there was a method to my badness, if you just have to trust me. And it begins there, and he says, Well, the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh. Okay, that should make us pause. Wait, what is Gideon doing right away? He's making his army bigger. God spent all of chapter 7 whittling his army down, getting it smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just 300. And the first thing that Gideon does is he summons more troops and more soldiers and gets more people to come and follow him. He starts to undo what God has done. And that's a small act in the beginning, but it just gets worse and worse from there. And this entire series of battles and conflicts is really completely unnecessary. The army's been defeated. God saved him. He wiped out the Midianites. They're fleeing. They're running away. They're going back to Midian. They're done. They're going to leave Israel alone. And Gideon is not pursuing them to save Israel. He is pursuing them because Gideon wants some glory. This is all about his own personal achievement. He wants to defeat kings. That's why their heads are brought to him as trophies. Because they know what he wants. He wants their garments and their kingly stuff. That We see this when he mentions in 821. How he takes the king's crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Now, 26, and besides the crescent ornaments, he takes the pennants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Gideon is doing all of this so he can have the stuff that kings have. 
He wants their trappings. He wants their purple robes. He wants the stuff that they drape over their camels so that when Gideon walks into town, everyone knows, ah, there's, there's Gideon. There's the king. He wants to not be a king like God at all. He very much is acting like a king of the world. He wants really to be like the kings of Midian. And he's going about all of this for his own glory and his own pursuit. And we see this too. He acts like a king in his kind of discussion back and forth in 18 through 21 with Ziba and Zalmunna, where he asks them, you know, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they tell him, well, they, they look like you. One, they say, well, the son of a king, because they know and realize what Gideon is trying to do. And he says, those are my brothers. And well, if the Lord lived, I would have saved you, which is, I don't think, true. I think Gideon is taking God's name in vain here. And it's very clear what he already would have done. He already killed other kings. He's going to kill more kings. And he says, well, I would, I would have saved you, but now I'm not. I'm going to kill you because you've killed my brothers. He's acting just like a king of the world. He's pursuing personal vengeance and personal vendettas. Because the family of the king has been wronged and now I've got to go get justice for myself. Again, it's not about Israel, it's about Gideon and what Gideon wants. And as a small aside, there's this interesting thing where he tries to get his son to kill the kings and the son doesn't. I remember reading this for a long time, I didn't really know what to do with that. Like, that's strange. Is this, is this a bad thing? Is his son supposed to kill these kings and he's sinful? Is he not supposed to hear what's going on here? Part of what I think this is, is we get through his son a little picture of what Gideon was before. Because his son is too afraid to do it, much like Gideon was too afraid to do much of anything all last week. And so I think it's, a, it's almost a, a foil of what, how far Gideon has fallen or how much he's changed into what he's turned into now. And so again, this whole story is really just about Gideon. It's not about him saving Israel. And he gets into a spat pretty quickly um, back at the beginning of chapter 8 with the tribe of Ephraim. And they accuse him fiercely, right? So they're, they're really angry. They're furious with Gideon. And what are they mad about it? And their primary accusation is, why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? Gideon sent out a call now for everyone to come and follow him. And they answered, but they're wondering, hey, why wasn't my phone ringing before? What's up? He only got 300. How come we were left out of that? And this interaction with Gideon is so fascinating because it's a good example of Gideon's diplomacy. In some sense, he handles it really well, especially when you compare it to the other two cities that he sees and how he handles when they don't, aren't that happy with him. He handles them very differently. But look a little closer at how he does it. It's not just him being a great diplomat. He begins by saying, well, you know, what have I done in comparison with you? And then he says it again, well, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? He very subtly is downgrading what God has done. And he also doesn't say anything about, well, I didn't call you because God told me not to. He say, well, you weren't invited because God whittled down the army and wanted only 300, and that's why you didn't get to be a part of it. Don't be mad at me, be mad at God. He's the one in charge here. He totally ignores that part of it. And it's also, you see again, how he responds compared to the other places. I think this is here not to show how great and how diplomatic Gideon can be, but it's to show that what he does with the other cities, he didn't have to do. There were other ways out of that. And yet this is the way that Gideon chose. And part of us trying to figure out, man, why does he do it here and not other places? One commentator pointed out that Ephraim was really well known for their military. And so this place was probably really strong and really fearsome, and the other cities were less so. And so Gideon didn't think he could bully them, so he handled it differently. But then once he had all the power over these other places, then he had to bring down the hammer. And there we see Gideon's lack of grace. His men are exhausted 
in 8.4, and they're, they're still pursuing. So he goes to these two cities, and he asks for bread. Like, man, we're, we're hungry. We're exhausted. We've been chasing them for a long time. We need some provisions. We need food. Can you help us? And both of them, Sukkoth responds with doubt. Sounds familiar to Gideon before, right? Well, are the hands of Zeban Zalmunna already in your hand? Why should we give you bread? All last week, Gideon was doubting. All throughout chapter 6, all throughout chapter 7, even though God himself was in front of him telling him he was going to hand him Midian, Gideon kept questioning, kept doubting, kept asking for sign after sign after sign. And so, yet, what does God do? God continually showed Gideon grace. God didn't beat him up. God didn't reject him and pick out somebody new or a different judge. God kept lovingly being gracious to Gideon. And yet, here we have the first time we see somebody doubt Gideon. And what does Gideon do? How does he respond? He doesn't, how does he respond when other people doubt and don't believe? He doesn't respond with grace. He gets furious. He gets angry. He loses his temper. And we do the same thing, don't we? When we see people doing sinful things or things that are wrong, they're very similar to the things that we also do. We usually get mad. Those are the people we tend to have the least amount of grace for. Because subconsciously, at least, we know they remind us of ourselves. But so Gideon responds and saying, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Well, then, when the Lord has given Zeban Zalmunna in my hands, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of wilderness and barriers. That is a very extreme response. And the next town, he says, I'm going to tear down your tower. And when Gideon returns, he does just that. He used to hide in the wine press and whip wheat, and now he is out here and he gathers up 77 leaders and he's whipping them all in public in front of the town. He is acting like a brutal tyrant. He's telling them, don't you doubt the word of the king. Don't you go against me. This isn't justice. This is Gideon settling his personal vendettas. This is Gideon trying to establish his own authority. This lesson has nothing to do with trusting God and everything to do with listening and obeying Gideon. His other extreme response with the next city of Penuel, he tells them he's going to destroy their tower. So I said, when I come in peace, I'm going to break down this tower. Which towers, that's a key part of defense of your city. Probably really proud of that tower. It's probably really significant. Probably really needed that to keep themselves safe from the Midianites and other places. And yet when Gideon returns, he goes beyond what he said. He breaks down the tower and then he kills the men of the city. It's almost a casual throwaway line that if you're reading too quick, you miss it. He butchers all of the men in the city because they were rude to him. He started by butchering Midianites and now he's just butchering Israelites. Not to save anybody, but just because he's mad. He's ruining families, wiping out dynasties. Gideon is ruthless. And he is acting much like a ruthless king who is trying to set up his authority. He is only out ruling for himself. And again, he, he acts differently than he does with Ephraim. And I think that shows us he didn't have to do this. He could have talked to them. He could have figured things out. He had, he had skills. He had the ability to settle this diplomatically. And yet he chose to do something different. And he continually chooses to do whatever he thinks really is best for Gideon. But the worst thing that Gideon does is involving the ephod. Right? So right after he turns down the official title of king in 22, he asks for tribute of all of the spoils, which is something the king would do. Right? This is something that the kings would do after they conquer it all. Okay, now turn it all over to me and then I'll decide what you get to keep because it's really mine. I'm the king. So he is already very quickly acting differently. And he takes all of the gold and he makes an ephod of it. And he puts it in his city in Oprah. 
And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He creates an idol right away. If there's any doubt that what Gideon is doing is not righteous, well, people who make idols and then worship it and lead other people to worship it, that's generally bad. It's almost always bad. It is always bad in Scripture, and yet that's what Gideon does. And an ephod, it's kind of a strange word. Oftentimes it's just translated idol, but specifically an ephod was something that the priests would wear. It's part of their clothes. So things that they would wear as they were making the sacrifices, as they were in the temple and the tabernacle. And so what I think Gideon is doing, he's not just making an idol, but he's making something that he himself would wear that would elevate himself above all the other spiritual leaders of Israel. Instead, if you remember back in chapter 6, it actually has this strange phrase that I don't think it uses of other judges to talk about how Gideon was clothed in the Spirit of God. But now Gideon is finding himself clothed in an idol, wrapped and draped in gold, acting like a priest, centering everything again about himself. And before Gideon dies, he accumulates as many wives as he can. It doesn't tell us how many, but it was enough to give him 70 sons. So that's, that's a lot. I'm not going to do math and try and figure that out, but that is too many. That is much like a king would do, right? Creating their harem, having his, lots of sons so they can establish their dynasty and their rule. Just like all the kings of the world. Gideon's not concerned with Israel. He's definitely not concerned with God and his commandments. He is just concerned with himself, his own glory, his own wealth, his own power, his own influence. And this really is a tragedy. Gideon's one of the few judges that we get to see what happens after he saves Israel. All the other judges, it, it ends, right? It says, well, they saved Israel and they ruled so many years and then they died and then Israel turned away to sin. Well, Gideon, it goes past that. We see Gideon tragically decline and how his story ends. And when he dies and it ends and says, well, then the people turned and hoard after other gods. It's not a surprise to us. It's the only logical conclusion because that's what their king, their judge has been leading them to do. Gideon is a very sinful king. I think he actually violates every single one of the Ten Commandments in this passage. I had that thought as I was studying it, looking through. I was like, man, Gideon just keeps doing so many different sins. I wonder how many of these Ten Commandments he breaks. And so I just wrote them all out and went through it. And I think he definitely breaks seven. He, I'm fairly sure he breaks all ten. Right? So, which is really impressive to do in such a short amount of time of Scripture. To just knock out all ten of them, just bang, bang, bang. So look at it. Tell me if maybe you, you see one that I missed. Um, so right away, right, he creates an ephod to worship. So that's, you know, worshiping other gods. That's definitely creating a graven image. So there's one and two. He knocked that out. He takes God's name in vain, violating the third commandment. He has false oaths. Where he says, oh, well, if the Lord lives, you know, I, I would have done this, which I don't think is true at all. And also he has empty words about God where he says, well, the Lord should rule over you, even though he then immediately starts ruling over them himself, taking God's name in vain. That's the third. Now, the Sabbath one, this one maybe could be a bit of a stretch, but although this narrative takes place in a large amount of time, we never see him celebrating the Sabbath. We never see him observing the Sabbath. And also in creating that ephod, right, in creating those priestly garments, where I then assume he's going to be wearing that as they celebrate the Sabbath 
doing things he's not supposed to be doing. So that, if he, that's true, then he does violate the fourth. He uses his mother as an excuse to kill those kings. He leads his family into sin and worshiping this idol. And he leaves his father's house in 20, 29 and lives in his own house, which is different and unusual. And he only does that because he wants to elevate and honor himself. Because I don't want my dad to get too much glory. I want all of it for myself. So that's not, our, not honoring your parents. That's violating the fifth. He kills and murders plenty of people, including a whole city of Israelites. Violates the sixth commandment, do not murder. He's over 70 sons with a bunch of wives and at least one concubine that seems fairly straightforward, committing of adultery. Violate, that's the seventh. Stealing one, this could be a little borderline, but you know, his request of the spoils of taking all of that gold, it's like 43 pounds of gold that he takes from everyone else just for himself. Now, I mean, he requests it, but you know, it's not just stealing, but it is, it is greedfully accumulating more stuff for himself that belongs to others. So that could or not be a violating of the eighth. He lies about bringing peace and then kills all of the men. He also, his turning down of the kingship is a lie and not true. So that'd be violating the ninth. And he very clearly violates the tenth and coveting all of the symbols and power and glory and prestige of the Mennonite kings. And he just knocks almost all of those out. Then God goes out of his way in this chapter to show us how sinful Gideon is. That even if he doesn't break all of those, maybe you differ with me on one or two, you got to see he breaks at least seven. That's a lot. So that's Gideon's rule. But why tell us this? Uh, why is this here in Scripture? Scripture has no problem with telling us how sinful even some of our greatest heroes like King David are. But why does it do this? And one of the reasons I think it does this is because the false king of Gideon points us towards the true king of Jesus. Point number two, we see that Jesus is the true king who rules for us. Jesus is the true king who rules for us. Jesus succeeds where Gideon fails. The first place is because Jesus is actually a true king, while Gideon is not. Gideon says that he isn't a king, and then he acts just like all of the kings of the world. Whereas Jesus is a king, and he doesn't act like any of the kings of the world. Even the, he doesn't act like any king that has ever been seen. And even the best kings in Israel's history, David and Solomon, they were pale shadows and a foreshadowing of the kind of true king that Jesus would be. That everything that was good about them is even better in Jesus. And the worst kings, much like Gideon, they give us hope or make us hope for a better king that would come. Israel, their whole life was spent. Every generation of wondering, hey, would this king be the Messiah? When is the Messiah coming? When will we finally have the king that we've been waiting for? And slowly but surely they'd watch as each king would make decisions and they can go, well, can scratch him off the list. It's obviously not him. No. Obviously not that one. Well, this one did it really quick. Figured out, you know, it's probably not his sons either. All of those kings lead the expectation towards Jesus. And Jesus came into the world not just as a savior, but as a king. This was the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. They expected a king to come and save them. And Jesus is that king. But part of why he was rejected by the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the world is because he wasn't a king like they expected. They wanted a king like the world. They didn't want a king who was just like Jesus. And Jesus' rule was not about making himself great. It wasn't even about making Israel great. Again, it was just about you and me and the people. It was about serving. 
Gideon, we see in, throughout these chapters, he's described as having lots of servants. He has at least 10 way back in chapter 6. Jesus has no servants. Yet Jesus himself instead was a servant. He told his disciples, the king, son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He gets down on his feet like a lowly servant and washes his disciples' feet. He serves. Jesus is a better king. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of King David. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. He wasn't born to great power. He wasn't born to great prestige. He was born to a poor family. In this sense, he was like Gideon, the least from the least tribe. He was largely homeless throughout his earthly ministry. He didn't pass a plate. He didn't get a bunch of offerings so he could have, you know, a jet plane. He didn't even really have a camel. The one time we have Jesus riding on any animal, he had to ask somebody to borrow it. It's the kind of king that Jesus was. And Jesus doesn't act like Gideon demanding spoils and tribute. The people have to pay Gideon and turn over all of their jewelry and their gold to him so that Gideon can be rich. Instead, when Jesus experiences a great victory, the greatest victory of all at the cross and at the tomb, defeating sin and death, and when he ascends up to heaven in victory, he doesn't demand that we throw money up at him so he can build himself a nice coat. Instead, Jesus shares the spoils of victory with us. Ephesians 4.8 tells us that when Jesus ascended with the spoils, unlike other kings, he gives gifts to us. Where other kings demand the spoils, Jesus shares them. And he gives freely to us. Jesus shares with us the defeat of death. That eternal life is a gift that is freely given to us. It is not because we deserve it. All that we really deserve is death and hell right now. And yet, our good king gives and offers us life. He lets us share in the spoils of resurrection. And one day, all of those who believe will be brought back to life and given glorified bodies. Gifts from a better king. Jesus also forgives where Gideon does not. God shows grace all throughout Gideon throughout his whole life. And yet, what does Gideon do? He takes 77 elders and whips them publicly. Yet Jesus says to forgive 77 times, or some translations, 70 times 7. Men doubt Gideon and he has no mercy even though he knows exactly what it is to doubt. Yet Jesus has grace for doubters. Like Thomas, and like you, and like me. You never hear about Jesus beating his disciples because they still don't believe him even after three years. Uh, most you hear from him is exasperation and his questions. And he says, do you guys still not believe me? Do you still not trust me? Have you still not been listening? And yet he shows grace. He doesn't push them away and get 12 new ones. That's what most of us would be tempted to do. Jesus himself, he shuns earthly glory. Gideon collects all the trappings of the king, right? The penance and the priestly garments and the robes and the crowns. But the only time we hear Jesus wearing a purple cloth is on his way to the cross as he is mocked. The only crown on Jesus' head is a crown of thorns and one of suffering. The only time he's called king is nailed above the cross, king of kings. It's meant to make a mockery of his kingship. And yet his glory is not found in the glory of the world and worldly kings and success and money. His glory is found in suffering a violent death on the cross. The only whips we ever see Jesus use are at the temple where he drives out cattle, where the rich and merchants are trying to rip off the poor. 
And they're misusing the temple and violating what religion is supposed to be. And they're using God's name to just enrich themselves. And he sends them out to cleanse it. Where Gideon uses whips to just anyone who's made him mad personally. And Jesus himself is whipped. His back is shredded by Romans on his way to the cross. They make him unrecognizable. Jesus is a better king. Jesus forgives those not just who doubt him. He forgives those who spit on him. He forgives the man next to him on a cross who spent most of his time hanging there mocking Jesus. But then at the end when the time is running out, Jesus offers him salvation and forgiveness. Gideon says, I'll flail your flesh with thorns and wilderness and briars. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Or Gideon says, I'll tear down your tower. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is a better king. And the peace that Jesus brings, it is true and final. Gideon tells the, the men in the city of Penuel that he will, will, comes in peace, but he'll destroy the tower, and then he kills all of the men that are there. And the peace that Gideon brought, the, the rest that they had for 40 years, the moment that Gideon dies, that peace ends. And they go back into oppression and slavery and suffering. And they abandon God again and find themselves in need of another savior, of another leader, another king, another judge. But the salvation and deliverance of Gideon didn't last, but Jesus' salvation and his deliverance lasts forever. His peace is eternal. And the death of Jesus is actually what accomplishes peace. What the world thinks is his failure on the cross is actually his victory. That Gideon's death leads to failure, but the death of Jesus is our deliverance. Jesus is a king who wins by dying. He saves by suffering. Or Jesus is a much, much better king. And King Jesus wants us to be a part of his kingdom. He came and did all of this. Why? Not to just give us an example of how we can be really nice to each other and, and love each other and that's it. He came to save us. Because all of us are sinners much like Gideon. You might not have broken all the Ten Commandments yet this morning, but you'll get there probably before the week is done. Some of us faster than others, if we're honest. And that sin, it separates us from God, right? It makes all of us deserving of judgment in hell. And yet, what does Jesus do? He doesn't wash his hands and say, well, it's what you deserve. You've made your bed. You deserve to lay in it. Good luck. He comes down himself. And he dies in our place. He takes the penalty for our sin that all of us deserve. He stepped off of his throne and was born in a stinky manger to deliver sinners like you and me from our sins, to offer us salvation and new life. He died in our place. He paid our penalty. He took on himself what you and I deserve. Not because he had to, not because he must, just out of his graciousness. His salvation is nothing that we deserve, and yet it is something that he gives us. And the salvation is available to all of us. No one is too far gone. No one has ever sinned too much. Even Gideon, he's mentioned later in Hebrews 11, among some of the heroes of the faith. You read this chapter and you wonder why. He doesn't act like anyone who deserves to be there. Well, none of us deserve to be there. None of us deserve to be in heaven at all. The only reason any of us will ever get there or will ever be able to spend eternity with Jesus is because of the blood of Jesus. It is because of his grace. 
If we look to ourselves to wonder if we're deserving of it, the answer is always going to be no. Our sin is too much, but the blood of Jesus washes us clean and white as snow. You can come and become a citizen of the king, and we get to be adopted into his family. We get to rule and reign one day as princes and princesses of the kingdom of Jesus. All we have to do is admit that we need it, to admit we're a sinner, confess that we need our salvation, and believe that Jesus really is the only true king. And if that's you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I invite you, come and find salvation. Throw yourself at the cross and find grace in the love of Jesus that is waiting for you. And those of you who already know Jesus, we need that same reminder. We are sons and daughters of the King, not because of anything you did, not because of anything you deserve, but just because of God's wonderful grace. And that grace that He showed you on the day that you were saved is still here today. His grace doesn't go away. It doesn't lessen. You don't get more of it if you're better. Jesus loves you because of grace, not because of what you did this morning or didn't do. So Gideon is the false king and Jesus is the true king. But what about ourselves? Point number three. It's just which king are you like? Which king will you be like or which king will you live like? We probably don't think of ourselves as king and queens often. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. But all of us have little kingdoms that we rule over. Our families, our work, our responsibilities, our homes. There are places, there are things that we have some semblance of authority over, even if it is really just our own lives. But all of us are tempted primarily in one way to make everything in our little kingdom about ourselves. To make sure that, that everything is about honoring and enriching me. If you look, almost all of our idols are really about ourselves. They're about what brings us pleasure, what brings us comfort, what makes me feel better, what makes me feel awesome. They're incredibly self-centered. And yet what Jesus does is completely different. If even Jesus isn't about himself, but is about serving sinners like you and me, what in the world should we be like? And if we have really been changed by the blood of Jesus, if we have been given new life, if we've been adopted into his family, if we've been saved from all of our sins, that in some for many of us is much worse than Gideon's, how can we then respond to that grace by making life all about us instead of making it about, all about Jesus? The gospel sets us free. I see too many Christians, unfortunately, and even too many Christian leaders who act much like Gideon, who they say the right things in the beginning, or maybe they even do great things for God. But as time goes on, they start to turn away. They begin to live in lust after power, and themselves, and their own influence, and their own awesomeness, and their own kingdoms, or churches, or ministries, or whatever it is. They start to act like Gideon and make life all about themselves instead of all about Jesus, and all about the people that Jesus loves. So the challenge for us, 
challenge for me is, are we going to be like Gideon or are we going to be like Jesus? Are we going to be people who come to the end of our lives and we can say, you know what, I ended well. I didn't get seduced by the power and the things of the world. I just tried to desperately follow after Jesus, however that looks like. So, in summary this morning, we've looked at Gideon, how Gideon is the false king. He just rules for himself. But Jesus is the true king who rules and serves us. And the question to ask yourself is, which king are you like? Don't be like Gideon. Be like Jesus. And really, ultimately, we can only be like Jesus because of his grace and his mercy. If you find yourself this morning convicted and think, man, maybe I am way too much like Gideon. I am way too much like myself. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Repent and ask for grace and you will find it. There is always grace for sinners who ask for it. We'll close this in prayer and invite the worship team to come back up. Lord, I thank you for the kind of king that you are. Lord, that you are a good king. Lord, you are a king that the more we hear and learn and see what are the things that you do as king, it makes us grateful that you're in charge. It doesn't infuriate us. We read about the kings and rulers and leaders of the world and we see things much like Gideon. We hear about you. We see how unlike anything and anyone you are. Lord, we praise you for who you are and we ask that you would show your grace to us. Lord, would you help us to not be like Gideon, but to be like Jesus. Lord, would you continue your sanctifying work in changing us bit by bit, step by step, into being more like Jesus. And to not being about ourselves, not being about our own kingdoms, but just being about you and about what you have done. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Won't you stand as we continue to worship our King. Our Lord, Lord is able. He is able for whatever you need this week, whatever you need this morning. You just have to ask Him. This benediction from Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.